When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, and welcome to The Tint. I'm your host, Scott Feldman. It's time for another look at all things aquarium. Today, I wanted to talk about something that uh, I find kind of interesting and a habitat that we've talked about very little over the years. And it's a habitat that's incredibly diverse, fascinating, ripe for replication, and just filled with all sorts of interesting little niches that we should definitely be playing with in our aquariums. And there's a lot to learn about it. Now, every once in a while, I find myself researching some exotic habitats or replicating my aquariums. And I'll inevitably mumble to myself something like, oh, that's good. I'm going to get back to that. And of course, I usually do at some point. Of course, I tend to be obsessed about a very narrow range of habitats. This is evidenced by the ramblings here and elsewhere. And you kind of know that. I mean, I admit that you don't have to search very deep into our blog to find at least 100 posts referencing flooded forest floors, particularly in South America, specifically in Brazil. They've been a focus, an educational vehicle, and an inspiration for all of us in the Blackwater and Metacle-style aquarium game. Now, of course, the flooded Igapo forests are about one of hundreds of possible habitats that the Botanical-style aquarium geek can choose to replicate or be inspired from. You know, one look at that habitat and you just can't blame me, right? It's, it's amazing. However, there's some really other very compelling habitats to explore out there. Today, I want to take a look at it, the most cursory look at a very different habitat, the Pantanal. It's an inspiring place that we've never really touched on much, and one which can inspire some amazing aquariums. One that isn't tinted. Well, it can be tinted, but not exactly like the Agapo. It's a perfect tie-in to a discussion that I'm going to have later uh, on today with my pal in the Pantanal, Ty Streitman, who's doing his post-grad work in this incredible place. And his amazing pictures you've probably seen, they've pretty much graced these pages and our social media feeds for quite a while now. The Pantanal is derived from the Portuguese word pantano, meaning swamp, wetland, or marsh. It's the largest wetlands region on Earth, full stop. It's primarily located within the Brazilian state of Mato Grosso do Sul, and it extends into the state of Mato Grosso and the nations of Paraguay and Bolivia as well. We're talking about a region estimated to be as large as 75,000 square miles. That's 195,000 square kilometers. It's freaking huge. It's essentially a large depression in the Earth's crust. And the Pantanal you know, constitutes a huge river delta into which a number of rivers converge, and they deposit sediments and other biological materials into this area. Now, of course, with a habitat this large, there's multiple ecosystems contained in it, and as many as 12 have been definitively um, described by scientists. Now, our main focus, of course, is fishes, and the Pantanal offers plenty of places for fishes to reside in. The cool thing about the Pantanal is that as much as 80% of its floodplains submerged during the rainy seasons, in which 59 inches or 1,500 meters of rainfall have been recorded, which corresponds to water depths that can fluctuate as much as 15 feet or 5 meters in some areas, it's home to an astonishing diversity of uh, aquarium fishes and plants. I say aquarium, I meant aquatic fishes and plants. I see that's where my mindset is. 
<laughs> with this enormous expanse of shallow, slowly flowing water. I mean, the velocities are no more than four, in, four inches or 10 centimeters per second. That's typical slow. Dense ve vegetation tends to be the norm here. The water itself tends to be turbid and perhaps even a bit anoxic at times. And typically it's clearer water, at least when it arrives in the Pantanal. And we'll talk to Ty about that later today. I'm get some clarity, on, no pun intended, some clarity on that because, you know, you see some coloration, but it might be derived by soils and such. But we'll, we'll get to that. I'm sure in the podcast with Ty, we'll, we'll hear about that. Interestingly, the highest levels of pH and dissolved oxygen in these habitats tend to occur when the water decreases and, plant, and the plant growth is stimulated. Now, curiously, scientists are not 100% certain if this is because the plants are going crazy with photosynthesis or if there's a mixing of the water column due to the influx of water. Weird, huh? Now, there's over 400 fish species that call this region home. And interestingly, the keystone species of the pantadol is not a fish. It's a snail, the apple snail, uh, family Ampularidae. It's a real survivor, and as it has both gills and lungs, which makes it, you know, survivable during the early part of the flood season when huge amounts of terrestrial plants decay and use up all the available oxygen, which pretty much suffocates all the larger decomposers in the ecosystem. So this remarkable and very fortunate adaptation enables these humble snails to consume the majority of the dead plant matter and turn it into fertilizer for the aquatic plants. And in sort of an insult, really, the snails then become feed for other animals. It's a rather undignified end for such an important creature, wouldn't you say? That's nature. Now, many of the fishes that are found in the Pantanal are migratory. They move seasonally between the river channels and the floodplain regions. As you might imagine, the bulk of them are detritivores, feeding on the fine particles from accumulated sediments and macrophytes. Remember those? Things that grow on other things within the system. Macrophytes supply shelter, food, resource, and cover for the resident fishes. And still, other fishes consume the aquatic insects and microorganisms and biofilms that are recruited in this habitat at all levels. Most are well adapted to the relatively oxygen-poor waters of this vast floodplain. Kerosins, our, our favorites, are represented big time in this habitat, with species of Moncausia, Hyphosobrycon, Pyrolea, Aphiocarax, and Kerosidium all present. Oh, and Epistol lovers, you're going to be pleased to know that there's some really cool ones found there. Uh, Epistogramma borrelii, Epistogramma trifasciata, Epistogramma camabrae, and, and a bunch of others. Even species as wide-ranging and diverse as Corydoras, Crencicla, Otocinculus, Abramites, and Leporinus are found in this ecosystem. That's a lot of different fishes. Now, according to most of the studies I've read on the systems and the discussions I've had with people in the know, like Ty, the contributing uh, factors to the fish populations include stuff like the clarity of the water, the abundance of the food sources, like i.e. those macrophytes again, and the connections between lakes and rivers. And as the water recedes, the available macrophytes tend to settle on the margins of the habitat in the form of, wait for it, our old friend detritus. That's right, detritus. And during the low water seasons, the resident fishes tend to occupy these areas where the you know, the, the materials, what are called autothonous resources, materials which are formed in the areas where they're found, not from outside of the habitat, a la our old friends, allochthonous uh, resources, you know, are, are found. Interesting. Damn, we talk about some really obscure shit in this blog, don't we? Well, you guys are pretty smart and worth a listen, right? Of course, the seasonal flooding of the marginal lowlands increases the quantity and the availability of the allochthonous uh, feeding sources for the floodplains and the fishes that tend to reside there. 
So it's an interesting example of the tight relationship between various habitats in the region, wouldn't you say? When the water levels rise, the marginal vegetation in the habitats dies off and contributes to the levels of the organic matter found in the water. This results in a decrease in dissolved oxygen, a lowering of the pH, and a little bit of a transparency uh, and the transparency of the water column. So those of you who are geeky, like hardcore biotope hobbyists who obsess over stuff like creating a tank to represent a habitat in a specific time of year should really take note of that, right? Biologists tend to think that the small fishes, the caracens specifically, benefit from fast growth, high fecundity, because they're prolific, and the rapid colonization capabilities, and that these roles, uh, uh, or excuse me, these characteristics uh, tend to you know, determine success in the pantanal environment. And one more example of this role of fishes in the pantanal, which consume fruits, um, you know, which come from trees and adjacent to the wetlands, is a perfect example. Around 150 species of fruit-eating fishes inhabit this system. Did you believe that? You know, I'm, I'm looking at my notes. It's really funny. That's why every once in a while, I got to digress for a second. The, the thing I love the most about doing the podcast, as opposed to just writing stuff, is I'm a terrible, as you can tell, I'm terrible at reading a script. So I tend to just, you know, look at my notes and meander. And every once in a while, I'll say something wrong or I'll find it written that, you know, the, the way I wrote it. And I'll say, boy, that was written poorly. So those of you that like to proofread my stuff, I mean, there's a few of you out there and say, hey, I found an error. I'm finding more than you are probably just trying to read this stuff. Anyway, back to the topic. When the fishes eat the fruits, they pass the seeds through, well, they poop, right? So amazingly, it's thought that they're responsible for the dispersal for as much as 95% of the trees that comprise tropical forests of the region. 95%. That's literally the definition of doing useful shit. Yeah, exactly. Now, interestingly, the highest levels of pH and dissolved oxygen in these habitats tend to occur when the water decreases and the plant growth is stimulated. Now, scientists are not 100% certain if this is because the plants are going crazy with photosynthesis or it's just mixing of the water column due to influx of new water. I talked about that before, but that's a really interesting topic. Aquatic plants, plants that are found here include, you know, some species that we keep in our aquariums. Polygonum, Salvinia, Pistia, Ludwigia, and a few others. So all of this cool information to process, and we've just touched on the tiniest amount of the most superficial aspects uh, of the information that could be found of interest in botanical-style aquarium hobbyists. There's so much there. How can we represent the Pantanal in an aquarium? Well, for starters, you could take a cue from the hardcore biotope community and pick a season and build up your micro-Pantanal theme from there. Of course, botanicals are absolutely appropriate for this niche, right? I'm thinking of a group of less tint-capable materials, stuff like latifolia pods, disoxylum pods, mocha pod sections, parvofluorophods, puberula pods, nipopom flowers, etc. Things that don't put a lot of tannin tint into the water, but uh, do decompose at a slower rate. These would represent that accumulation of fruits and seeds that are part of the allochthonous input into this habitat. Likely, uh, the substrate would likely be a mix of finer sands, and you can include some of the more nutritive you know, fertilizer additives as well. Uh, when I say fertilizer additives, I mean the fertilizer substrates. These would be both functionally and aesthetically accurate to represent the sediments that comprise much of the substrate in the Pantanal. With aquatic plants being the most common in these habitats, these rich substrates and combination of minimally tinting botanicals makes for a pretty interesting planted tank. I could even see this working with some marginal aquatic plants and grasses to sort of represent the vegetation which is found in that habitat. 
Now, although you might find some branches in this habitat, you're not likely to find big logs and such because it's primarily, you know, grasslands. So an aquarium attempting to replicate this habitat would likely be more realistic if you utilize twigs and smaller branches for this. And of course, leaves could work too, but I'd tend to use smaller, less tint-capable ones, like guava leaves, for example, if you're so inclined. Now, we've hardly even touched on the possibilities here, hopefully just whetted your appetite for the area. Now, in the interest of keeping this uh, podcast relatively short, and uh, again, we'll talk more with Todd uh, with Ty later on about this, and that'll be more interesting, I had to stay relatively superficial. And quite honestly, I, I literally have no examples of aquariums that I know have been created to represent this habitat. At least no one's brought one to my attention. So love to see some pictures of ones that you've done. Or you, of course, you can create one from scratch and document it. This habitat is just filled with possibilities for replications. And the relative absence of representation of this habitat in the natural aquarium hobby tells me that not only is the Pantanal ripe for replication, it's a perfect ground floor opportunity for us to study, discover more about, uh, and create evolutions and breakthroughs in this hobby. And with these environments under a variety of environmental pressures, you know, learning about and sharing aquariums based on them is a great way to call attention to the threats that they face, isn't it? It's time to do something, right? Let's see what you got. Stay inspired, stay excited, stay creative, stay educated, stay studious, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Fellman. Thanks again for spending part of your day with me. Looking forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tint.